And so last week we began a new message series called Some Assembly Required. It's a relationship series, um, of course, with this being February, the love month, and just coming off of Valentine's Day. How many lovebirds in the house had a fantastic Valentine's Day? Just a few. If you're sitting by your spouse, your hand better go up, right? I had a great Valentine's Day. Uh, I am madly in love with my wife, and I don't care who knows it. And Valentine's Day was, was awesome, but this whole month, the love month, February, again, being strategic in the way that we want to empower uh, families and relationships, we, we, are, we are going through this relationship series called Some Assembly Required. And I'd like to begin by reading the theme passage that we talked a little bit more in length about last week. I encourage you to get a hold of that video if you could. We talked about building healthy relationships. But we start in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Jesus is speaking, and he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. He goes on and he talks about a different kind of builder, somebody who hears these words of mine, he says, and then he does not put them into practice. He is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So what is Jesus saying here specifically? Jesus is talking to this is disciples. He's talking to the people that had gathered to listen to his teaching, and he explains to them a wise builder and a foolish builder, a good builder and a bad builder. And I believe he's comparing two mindsets, two types of people in the world, the people who want to just take the easy road, the people who just want to go through the motions and depend on instinct, and the people who want to put in the work, the people who want to take the words that he's speaking and put them into practice. God's word is an epic narrative that is filled with teaching and instruction that if we are wise and we apply it to our lives, we then can build our lives in a way that God intended for us to build, especially when it comes to our relationships. Whether we realize it or not, our entire lives are built on relationships. From the moment you're born, your parents hold you and they talk to you. I love holding my baby girl, talking to her. She doesn't even know what I'm saying. But I just say whatever. I love to just hold her and hold her close and kiss her little squishy cheeks because she's adorable, right? And, and she and I are forming this relationship. And, you know, our, our, our parents begin to teach us things and show us things and give us instruction and show us life. And then eventually we get into school and maybe we're homeschooled and our parents then are our teachers. But if we go to the public school system or the private school system, we have relationships with our teachers who they then show us things and teach us things. And a lot of what we learn and a lot of what we do in life is through relationships. And then after it's teachers, it's friendships that we form in school, on sporting teams, you name it, we, we build relationships with the people around us. And then eventually, even in school, you get that first boyfriend or that first girlfriend. Of course, my daughter knows, both my daughters will know eventually that they don't have a boyfriend until after school. But boyfriends and girlfriends, and then if it's God's intention and God's will for you, then you will found, find maybe a spouse to spend the rest of your life with. And then you may have children, and, and, then, and then in your workplace, there's coworkers and people and friendships that you, know, that you work with. So all of our lives are just functioning out of this big mesh of relationships. And if we're not careful, chaos can enter into our lives 
and it at first attacks our relationships. If we're not careful to build our relationships on the rock of God's word and listen to his instructions in his way to build the relationships, then it will leave us in a heap of ruins, as Jesus tells us. Culture has adopted the mindset, however, that relationships are all about instinct. You don't have to really work on them or work to get them better. You just, if, if somebody, if you marry somebody and you no longer like the way that they make you feel, then you can dispose of that relationship. And culture has, has caused us to believe this compatibility misconception like we talked about last week, where there's an overemphasis on, spirit, uh, it's an overemphasis on physical attraction and emotional attachment and an infatuation phase that really only lasts between six weeks and 18 months from the moment we fall in love with someone. And so specifically speaking of marriages, most of us are engaged or married before that 18 months is up. And then the feelings may start to dissipate or that we we no longer necessarily like the way that they talk to us or the way they treat us or the way they even look to us or somebody else may look better to us or someone else may make us feel better. And so culture has caused us to believe this lie that that means we are no longer compatible, therefore we can dispose of the relationship. But I'm here to tell you that is a lie from the pit of hell because no relationship was meant to be disposable. In fact, all relationships were created by God and for God. Amen? So in our culture, our music, be honest. Some of the songs you listen to that you rock out to on your way to work, some of these love songs are nuts. The, the lyrics are all about physical attraction, emotional stimulation, infatuation, and it's surface level love. It's not a real, true, committed relationship. And so when that relationship begins to move beyond surface level, and again, they no longer make us feel the way they once made us feel, we might break up in the marriage with divorce and say something along the lines of, it's not working anymore. As a matter of fact, when working with students, I had a conversation, uh, me and my wife, with with this middle school girl who said she broke up with her boyfriend because it just wasn't working. To which I said, it wasn't working or you weren't working on it. See, our relationships come with some assembly required. Amen? God has given us his word, his instruction. And I'm not saying every person that you meet is going to be the one that you should marry, but all relationships require some assembly. The culture we live in is this cycle of look up, meet up, hook up, shack up, we mess up, and then we break up, and we repeat the cycle. We live in a day and age where it's a swipe left, swipe right culture where you can find a date on your phone and get what you need from that relationship and then end it just to come back to that same app on your phone and start a new relationship the very next day. And it's sad and it's sickening because it's not God's way of building lasting love and relationships. We see in the creation story, Genesis chapter 1, Verse 26, we see God talking about the relationships. And as a matter of fact, the two things that stand out to me in Genesis, after God creates man and then he creates woman from man, he looks at them and he says, then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. And I think he's talking more than just making babies. I think he's talking about being fruitful and multiplying in the teamwork, in the union of their marriage to go and to put his love and his glory on display. So the world tells us to do it one way. God tells us to do it another way. 
And in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, it says, don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world. Instead, let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. God has a pleasing, perfect, good will for you and for your marriage, for all relationships, because they are created by him. And in Genesis, the other thing that God says is not only did he tell him to be fruitful, multiply, but he comes back then at the very end of the creation of man. He looks at everything and he says, this was good. This was good. This was good. This was good. But then when he sees that man and woman are united in a covenant relationship, he looks out across his creation and he sees everything that he created. And he says, and this is very good. And now that phrase, very good, in Hebrew is the word tov miod. Tov meaning good, tov miod meaning very good. And if you really study it down and look at that word, it means it went from good to excellent. And it went from just functioning to fulfilling. How many of you know that when your relationship, whether it be with your spouse or your, be- or your best friend, when your relationship is really at its best, it is fulfilling? And it's exactly what God intended for our relationship, to not just function, but to be fulfilling. And it's as if God looked at his creation and said, this is working even better than I anticipated. They not only love me, but they love each other. And they love their children. And they're teaching their children of me. And they're raising everyone. And they're putting me on display for the world. But like most good things in life, you can only stay at that peak level for so long. You've got to put in the work. All relationships require work. All relationships require some assembly. So God tells them, be fruitful, multiply, work together, help each other. You're a team. You're going to put me on display. And that's how every marriage starts. Am I right? Every marriage starts with this exciting beginning of a new journey, two people coming together, and you're in love, and you're excited, and it's calm, and it's orderly. You have your life together. I remember talking with my wife before we got married, you know, during engagement, like, you know, here, here's, we even set up our budget before we got married. We wanted to be ahead of the game. We're like, you know, we're going to have our finances in order. We're going to have this in order. We're going to have this in order. We're going to do it God's way. We're going to do this. And then conflict comes. Like every relationship, you're faced with that moment of conflict in what the world wants you to believe and what the enemy wants you to believe is that means because we are in conflict with one another and we cannot seem to work out our disagreements, we need to exit the relationship and dispose of that relationship. That is not God's way. But I remember being newly, being newly wed and I remember being in, you know, moving in together and, and just being excited about living together. And I remember realizing quickly that conflict can come pretty quickly. I'll give you a funny example. I remember um, talking to my wife about my upbringing and, and, our, and, I, and our, at our cookouts, my mom always makes sweet tea. In fact, I grew up, we drank sweet tea like it was water. It was just like we had sweet tea with everything, every meal, and it's so good. I, I mean, I can taste it now. In fact, I want a sweet tea right after the service. I just, I love my mom's sweet tea. And I remember telling her, like, oh, it's so great, you know, and so good. And she doesn't even like tea, but being a good wife, she decides I'm going to make some tea. 
She don't even like tea. That's love, people. She's going to make tea and have it in our home because she knows I love to drink it. My kids don't even like it, which is awesome because it's all mine. And they'll drink it because they think, you know, I talk about how good it is, so they think they like it. They don't. It's all mine. So it's tea, and it's in the fridge, and it's, it tastes so good. And she's being a good wife, right? But she overhears me telling someone, I think I was telling my brother to cook out, like, dude, nobody makes tea as good as mom. Like, this tea is so good. Nobody makes tea this good. Like, it's so, and she overhears it. And I didn't know it at the time, but what she actually heard, I was just giving a compliment to my mom, sweetie. But what she heard is, Becca, your tea sucks. Don't ever make me tea again because it's not going to be as good as my mom's. That was not what I said, but I didn't have sweet tea in my house for a long time. But I'm here to tell you and testify that my, my wife now makes sweet tea as good as my mom. And it's so good. But it's just a funny example of how conflict can start and we don't necessarily resolve it immediately. It's something we hear, it's something we internalize, and then it ends up coming out later on. I remember too, uh, you know, my wife would, we would get ready up to go on a date and she would, she would come to me and, and gentlemen, you, you, you know exactly what's coming. She gets stressed and then she says, how do I look? No hesitation. You look Awesome. No, I'm telling you, girl, you look good. She's like, really? Because I have like nothing to wear and I don't even know what I'm going to do. And I'm like, no, you look good. Or it's the other way around. A couple years into the marriage, now it's a different question. It's, does this make me look fat? Again, gentlemen, no hesitation. You could say, no, of course not. She's like, yes, it does. And then she'll go, it's like, you can't, you know, just little tiny things, personality clashes. Sometimes you have that emotional difference where she wants to cry about something, but you think it's funny. It's just, there's constant areas where if we're not careful, chaos can creep in. The devil can reach into our relationships and get a foothold. And it's a problem. Conflict comes. Conflict is described as this. It's defined as a serious disagreement or argument, typically a protracted one. As a verb, it says that it is when we are incompatible or clashing. And that's exactly what conflict is. Sometimes we're in conflicts with each other, whether it's in a marriage or a different type of relationship, and we begin to see it from our point of view only, and they see it from their point of view only. And they say there's, there's two sides to every story. There's your side and their side. But in reality, there's another side of the story, which is the true story, right? There's his story, her story, and the true story. And that's true in every conflict, and so what I want us to do is just look at what the Bible has to say about conflict because we could decide right here and right now that, you know what, I am not going to fight anymore. I'm just, conflict is, is, is chaotic and I don't want conflict in my home, so I'm just not going to fight. But what I think we'll see is that it is nearly impossible and in fact it would be unhealthy for us to never enter into conflict. What we need to do is learn how to have healthy conflict. Amen? And the Bible has a lot to say about it, but here's what relationship conflict does in our personal lives. The first thing that relationships do in relationship conflicts, they interfere with our faith. When you're in a relationship conflict, you quickly notice that it's not just interfering with your marriage or with you as a person, but it interferes with your spiritual life. It interferes with your relationship with God. I cannot be super close to God if I'm not super close in my relationships. If I am struggling to love the people around me, it's difficult for me to truly love God. As a matter of fact, 1 John 4.20 puts it this way. It says, if someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God 
whom we can't see. Now, if I'm being honest with you guys this morning, there's been moments in my life where I have lied to God saying, God, I love you. I'm serving you. I want to give you everything I have, but I'm not sharing the part with him where I'm in conflict and I'm bitter and angry and I'm harboring resentment towards someone. And it is very difficult. I don't want to lie to God anymore. Can I get a witness in the house today? I don't want to have conflict in my life. And because I'm not handling the conflict, because I'm just managing it, but I'm not resolving it, it stays inside of me. And then I try to go and act like I can serve God. But in reality, I can't really serve God to my fullest potential because I have a bad relationship or I have conflict that I need to resolve. So it interferes with my faith. You know, there's something, there's something amazing about how God merges both our horizontal relationships along with his vertical relationship. And the best way I can describe it to you is that in my line of work in land surveying, before we do any type of project, the first thing we have to do is we have to figure out how we're going to get control of the job, meaning how we are going to take all of the measurements that we are about to make, and instead of just having them hanging in space, we have to give them a plane, a coordinate system of where they belong horizontally, where they exist on the map, you know, east, west, north, south, and then vertically, where they exist height-wise in relation to what they are going to construct and build. Make sense? That's the first thing we have to do. I believe God designed us in our relationships to be able to coexist with one another, maybe not always being eye to eye, but still being hand in hand. And in our relationship, being willing to be able to look each other in the eye and say, I love you and I'm still with you and our relationship is still there and we're still committed to one another, even if things are getting chaotic. I believe God wants our, our horizontal relationships to be just as healthy as our vertical relationship. Amen? So it interferes with our, with our faith and then it hinders our prayers. I want to show you in another passage where God specifically says that he's not hearing our prayers. Our prayers are hindered when we're not in a healthy relationship, when we are in constant conflict. It hinders my prayers. It hinders my conversation with God. God describes prayer throughout the New Testament talking about how it's an ongoing conversation. He says things like pray without ceasing. And it's an ongoing conversation that's interrupted by life at different moments in time. But what happens is when we get into conflict with our spouse or with whoever it may be, when we enter into a relationship conflict, it hinders our prayers. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, in the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should, so your prayers will not be hindered. And some lady said, amen. You better treat me with respect, boy. Go ahead. It's all right. You can throw an elbow to your spouse. Treat me with respect. Gentlemen, we need to be careful to speak and to lead our relationships with our wives, with everyone, with respect and consideration so that nothing hinders our prayers. Because prayer is more than just twisting God's arm, telling him what we want or what we think we need. Prayer is us being aligned with God so that he can speak back. It's a conversation that is two-way, where we tell him what we think we need and what we want, and he tells us, here's what I need from you and what I think you need. And then it supplies us, and he blesses us, and he gives us what we need for what he's calling us to. It aligns our hearts with his heart. I don't want to get out of alignment with God simply because I'm refusing to manage the conflict. I'm refusing to resolve the conflict in my life. 
So it hinders our prayers. When you're in conflict, it's hard to be loving. I don't know if you're like me, but when I'm in conflict with my wife or with a different relationship going on with me, I'm not a delightful person to be around. Have you ever been around somebody where they just are constantly complaining about somebody else or constantly complaining about the conflict that they're in, whether it's with their spouse or not? They just are constantly saying, you know, I can't believe he did this. I can't believe he did that. Every day there's new material. You're like, what did he do last night? Let's hear it. What did he do? And they're just going on and on. Sometimes we are that person, right? Sometimes we are the ones that are just complaining and complaining. And what we don't realize is while we are complaining, while we are refusing to resolve that conflict, we're hindering our prayer with God. We're hindering that conversation with God where he wants to speak to us things, but we can't hear. And we want to tell him things that he's not listening to because he sees our conflict. And then the third thing that happens is it interrupts our calling our divine purpose. God is calling us to something special. Each one of us has a divine purpose. It doesn't matter what age you are. It doesn't matter where you are in your walk with God. If you have a pulse, you have a purpose, and God wants to show you his purpose for you. But when you're in conflict, it interrupts your purpose. When your relationships are off, it kind of throws everything else out of whack. In fact, I've noticed in my household when me and Becca are not getting along and we're not seeing eye to eye on things, it really throws off the whole family dynamic because now we're, we're, we're like real short-tempered with the kids because we're mad at each other. And, you know, you know I remember you know, we, used to, we used to joke around as kids and, and laugh because when we would be fighting and my mom would be, <laughs> my mom would be busy with us. I mean, I'm the youngest of seven kids, so y'all, like, my mom is a saint, okay? And so she would be telling, you know, us, go, go to your room and you do this and stop fighting and stuff. You know, it was usually my brothers and sisters fighting. I was usually just sitting there reading my Bible, like, just whatever. <laughs> it was... I, you don't believe it? And it was just constant, you know, fighting with my brothers, fighting with my sister. And she'd be like, I'm, I've told you for the last time. Then the phone rings. She'd be like, hello, Schaefer's. <laughs> and we would, just, we would lo- like just lose it because it was so funny. But when we're in that just constant chaos and then, you know, there's that interruption to our real calling in life, which is other people. Let's look at John 13. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you, you should love each other. So when it interrupts our calling, what we're really doing is we're allowing the conflict to not just interfere with our relationship, but the fact that we can minister to other people. I hope you believe this, because I believe this with all of my heart, that every time you wake up and you go about your day, God is orchestrating you to cross paths with certain people so that you can love on them and that you can show them who Jesus is. I'll never forget Mrs. Abramson, one of my eighth grade teachers, told me, Corey, you may be the only Jesus that some people ever get to see. And I'm far from Jesus, but I want to never let anything interrupt my calling, which is to show the world who Jesus is. Amen? And that is our calling. I don't want the conflict in my life, and it's going to come, but I don't want the conflict in my life to, uh, to cause me to miss out on those people that he wants me to love. So when conflict comes, it's easy to miss those opportunities. So do we choose today to never fight again, or do we want to use that same energy that we waste on acting like we're not going to fight, we're not going to talk about it, we're not going to deal with it? I think instead, let's choose how to fight right the first thing we can do is ask God for wisdom. 
asking God for help with the timing and the approach of what to say and when to say it. I joke around with my wife. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a verbal processor, so when we get into conflict, I'm, I'm like, let's work this out right here, right now. And so usually what happens is I'm like telling her, I'm just like running my mouth and saying, here's, what, here's, here's how I see it, here's what we need to do, and I'm like verbal processing. And she's more of the type that she just wants to like get away from me and just think about it. So she, like, she's literally like walking away from me. I'm following her. I'm like, no, I think it's this way and I think it's this way and I think it's this way. And she's like, and then she just needs to get away from it all and just process. That's how she is. And so I've learned to understand that. But what's funny is I've learned to then take that moment while she's processing for me to verbal process to God. And I just go and ask God for wisdom. And what's funny is I thought in our first fight, I thought, you know what? I'm going to take care of this. I'm just going to do what I did when we were dating. I'm just going to wait for the right moment. I'm just going to come, come up behind her and just give her that sweet embrace, you know, a little peck on the cheek or something. And what's weird is I got the elbow instead. <laughs> and I said, wait a minute. I said, I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm a godly man. Adam was told to hold fast to his wife. So get back here. We're going to hug this out. And I try to wrap her up. And she's like, get off me, right? She needs to think about it. She's mad. She needs to process. And so what I need to do, if I'm really a man of God, what I need to do is I need to go to God and ask for wisdom. I need to go to God and say, God, I need help with the timing and the approach. I need help with what to say and how to say it. Here's what the Bible has to say in James 1.5. It says, if you want to know what God wants you to do, anybody want to know what God wants you to do? Just ask him. He will gladly tell you, for he is always ready to give a bountiful supply of wisdom to all who ask him. He will not resent it. He's waiting for us to ask in that moment of conflict, in that moment of just you feel like you just slammed on the brakes and you're like, this relationship is in trouble. What do I do now? God wants you to come to him and ask him for wisdom. And when you're filled with God, when I'm, when I'm operating out of the Holy Spirit, it's so much, our relationship is so much different because you know what? Things do not offend me as easily when I'm filled with the Spirit of God. Things that we would normally fight about, we're not fighting about when I'm filled with the wisdom of God, when I'm filled with the Spirit of God. It's so much easier to get along with other people. In fact, I would say when I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, I'm unoffendable because what is there to be offended about? Like, like we see people like Paul say, look, if you, if, you, if you kill me, I'll go and be with the Lord. If you want to persecute me, okay, if I'll, I'll just be a martyr and I get to go be with Jesus. But if you don't, I'm just going to keep on living life and I'm going to keep on doing what I'm called to do because I know I'm in the will of God. And so when you're in that moment, not only is conflict lessened, but you start to realize how God wants to speak into your life about your situation. And the second thing is we need to be willing to make the first move. When you're in conflict with your spouse, how many of you have been there before where you're just going, they better come to me? I got something to say. I'm going to say it until they make the first move. I'm just going to make my peace. I'm just going to sit right here. They've offended me. And they, if they're, if they're smart, they're going to come talk to me and work this out. Unfortunately, even though we've all been there, that is not what the Bible says. You got to make the first move. You got to make the initiative to make peace. God even says it's more important than your Christian disciplines. Here's what he says in Matthew 5. Verse 23 and 24, this messed with my head. So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, catch that. Not you have something against someone, but someone has something against you. 
Leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come back and offer your sacrifice to God. Especially you don't hear too many pastors say this. If you're in conflict, you best get up and go take care of it right now because it's more important than being in church. This is God telling us how important our relationships are. That if you're in conflict and you're not walking, hand, if you're not seeing the same thing and you're not together and it's caused division, God cares more about your unity with your relationships than he cares about your religion. I believe somewhere else it talks about our religion and our acts of righteousness being like filthy rags. We can't earn God's approval, especially when he's telling us, look, if you've got issues, if you've got conflict, I want you to go take care of that first, then come back and worship me. And I think God tells us this because he's on to something that we don't always catch. Have you ever heard the saying before, time heals? I just need time. Time heals everything. Truth be told, time does not heal everything. In fact, in my experience and arguments with, with my wife and arguments I've had with other people, time makes things worse. Time creates the opportunity for people to build up resentment and, bitter, and bitterness and unforgiveness. Sometimes the longer you wait, <laughs> the worse off it is. So when you have that offense, let's try to take care of it immediately. And again, if they need time to process, then you, then you schedule it. Write it on the calendar if you have to. You say, I'm not putting this off for very long. Whenever you're ready to talk about it, we're talking about it. And you know what? Marriages often get hung up in managing the conflict where they think, you know what? It's just not worth fighting about. So we're just going to drop it. Even though it wasn't resolved, we're just going to drop it. And what happens is they end up carrying that with them, whether they realize it or not, into the next argument, in the next argument, in the next argument. And before long, there's an explosion because there's resentment and arguments. And the thing was never resolved. It was simply just managed. So you've got to be willing to make the first move, recognizing that time does not heal everything. Sometimes you've got to act now and not put it off. And the third thing, is to confess your part of the problem. Confess your part of the issue. Whatever it may be, an argument, a disagreement, if it happened to both of you, you're part of the equation. Confess your faults first. Start with how you were wrong. And if, I'm, if I say to my wife, like, here, I just challenge you to do this. The next argument you get in, be the first one to make the move and go and confess your fault first. Start by just saying something like, you know what? I was selfish and full of myself, and it was my fault. And after they pass out, pick them back up, right? And tell them, no, I'm serious. I'm a selfish person. I'm not going to sit here and attack your selfishness when I, too, am a selfish person. Confess your part. James 4.1 tells us that every quarrel that we have, every fight that we get into, is really caused by selfish desires that are continually at war within us. How true is that? Sometimes it starts out as just a tiny little conflict that by the time you make up, you laugh at what caused the argument. It starts out as something small, but you blow it out of proportion because you just get so passionate and you start wanting to be right and you start wanting to make sure that, you know what, I'm just going to tell you what you did wrong and I don't care about what I did wrong because you did something wrong. When in reality, God wants us to confess our part to be flexible in willingness and not give up on the relationship simply because you messed up. Sometimes you got to eat a little bit of humble pie, right? Sometimes you got to go to your wife and say, I was just, I was a jerk. I was an absolute jerk. In which case she says, yeah, you're right. You were. Matthew chapter seven. 
It says, why do you notice that little piece of dust in your friend's eyes? Talking about a conflict here. But you don't notice the big piece of wood in your own eye. How can you say to your friend, let me take that little piece of dust out of your eye. Look at yourself. You still have that big piece of wood in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the wood out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the dust out of your friend's eye. And this is the picture I think of when I'm simply only concentrated on what the other person did wrong. I'm sitting there trying to point out everything. that I'm trying to get a piece of dust out of their eye. Meanwhile, they're dodging this giant telephone pole that's just about ready to knock them out because of what I've done wrong. I first have to acknowledge what I have done wrong and break the ice of the conflict and say, I'm sorry, I was only thinking of myself. And just repeat that over and over. That has worked for me. I'm like, I did that wrong. And then she's like, yep. And I'm like, and I also did that wrong. And she's like, yep. As a matter of fact, when I was writing this, uh, these notes for this message, um, Becky saw them on the table. And at the top, I titled my message, Fight Right. We're going to learn how to fight right. And she crossed out fight and just put at the top, the wife is always right. (laughs) So I had to put that in my notes. Um, That's not Bible, but write that down. (laughs) Gentlemen, write that down. So confess your part and break the ice of the conflict. And the fourth thing we can do is to speak the truth then with love. At this point, the conflict is already probably being resolved. And there's still some things that need said, especially if you're a verbal processor like me. It's like, we're going to talk this all the way through. A, I don't want it to happen again. Naturally, men like to fix things. So it's like, look, we didn't, I don't just want to fix this now. I want to fix this from never happening again for the rest of my life. Like, I, I want to fix this permanently. Like, get out the liquid nail, do what we got to do. Let's fix this perfectly. So it lasts forever. So we got to learn to speak the truth in love when there's things said. Proverbs 12, 18 says, The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. In Ephesians 4, 29, don't use foul or abusive language. Anybody ever said something they didn't mean in an argument? Okay, just me. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. In other words, if you're using foul or abusive language, that clearly is not helpful. Just because you're thinking it does not mean you have to say it. And if you say something offensively, why are we surprised when they take it defensively, right? And it happens in almost every argument. The moment you start yelling, the other person shuts down and they stop listening. And I, I've, I've had several conversations with, with Becca. We say, we, we say over and over, we don't, want to be, we don't want to constantly be yelling in our house. We don't want to constantly be yelling at our kids. We're like, we're not going to be that person that, you know, you go to Walmart or you go to a store somewhere and, you know, you're just trying to mind your business, get your groceries. And then some poor mom or, you know, dad dealing with just these rotten kids and they're screaming and yelling at them. And you're thinking, geez, you know, they're about to lose it on those kids. You know, back in the day, you know, parents would step in and spank them for them, right? But now you're scared. You don't want to spank anybody, right? Because you can go to jail. But anyway, so you're sitting there and you're thinking, oh my gosh, you know, but then next week you're that person in Walmart and your kids are acting up and you're yelling at them. And we say over and over like, we just, why do we always yell? It's like something about yelling. We think we have to yell in order to be heard in order for someone to truly listen, but it does the opposite. It makes them shut down. Doesn't it? It makes them go, whoa, you don't really care about me or this conflict because you're screaming and you're yelling. And it's, it's, it's an ongoing process, something that we are trying to incorporate into our life to not yell as much. Being brutally honest in arguments is the same thing as being a jerk. 
sometimes we say, oh, I'm just, I'm just going to give it to you. I'm just going to be honest. This is how I saw it. Let's not, let's not allow that to become code for, I'm about to be a jerk to you and I want your permission. Because when you are trying to share your point of view, you cannot be persuasive if you're being abrasive. You can go ahead and write that down because I stole that. You can be persuasive, but if you're being abrasive, you can't be persuasive. And it makes so much sense. It rings so true for me whenever I'm trying to get my point across and I'm trying to win the argument. I begin to use those reckless words that pierce like a sword. And sometimes I even say things that I don't really mean, but I say them because I am mad or because I'm angry or because I feel like I need to get my point across. In the Cold War, 1950s to 1989, this was before my time. I was literally born in 1990. So right when the Cold War was wrapping up, there were world leaders that said the WMDs are weapons that we will not use in warfare, the weapons of mass destruction. I believe in our relationships, we have weapons of mass destruction that come out through our words. And we've ended relationships, and we've spoken death. The Bible says the tongue has the power of life and death, but we've spoken death into our relationships, and we've wondered why they crumbled to the ground. But we were the ones using weapons of mass destruction. We were the ones who broke... I think it would be wise, me and Becca just started this list recently, and we are adding to the list all of the time, pretty much every conflict we have, things that are weapons of mass destruction that we refuse to use in an argument. Because our marriage is, is worth more to us than who's right and who's wrong. So there's words that we wrote down that we will not say to each other. There's phrases that we will not say to us. I'll give you one example. Threatening them to leave. Threatening them with divorce. When you enter into a covenant marriage... Divorce is not the trap door. There is no trap door. I remember realizing when we had our first fight that, dang, I can't leave. I can't go, to, I can't go home. Like, we're in the same house now. We have to work this out. We have to make this work. I can't just get in the car and just burn rubber and, you know, and just ignore this and hope it goes away. I've got to face this conflict head on. And I cannot use the words that are going to destroy this marriage and speak death into this marriage. And the fifth thing the Bible points out is we need to learn how to fix the problem when we're in conflict, not the blame. Blame. The two friends come together and they say, let's attack the issue, not the blame. At the end of the day, you are on the same team. It's not you against them. That's what the enemy wants. That's what the enemy is trying to do from the get-go. He's trying to cause chaos to divide the two of you. So it's you versus them. When in reality, every conflict is simply a way of trying to divide you. You need to attack it head on and focus on reconciliation. Combat the chaos. Combat the problem. Don't just, play, just blame, 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 blame. Someone told me once, and I'll never forget it. You spell blame, be lame. It's a cop-out. Whenever you are blaming someone, you are being lame. You are just trying to shift the blame onto them when in reality it's two people in a committed relationship experiencing conflict. Matthew 5, 9 tells us that God blesses those who work for peace for they will be called the children of God. When you focus on reconciliation, when you decide that we're going to attack the problem, 
and not just blame each other. We are bringing peace back into our marriage. We're bringing the peace that God created our relationship with from the start. And our world is filled with conflict and stress. I mean, you turn on the news and it's this person's against this person and I'm going to go to their event and protest because just because I disagree with them, therefore I have to hate them. That, that's false. The more different you and your spouse are, the better opportunity you have to grow. How great is it whenever I, whenever I realize that I actually am wrong? And no, she's not always right, but she is right about this. And we bring our perspectives together and we are able to do life better together than we could apart. That is God's design for marriage. To ask each other, to lean on each other, to have that intimate connection And then when you do that, you bring about peace. When we do all of these things, we are seeking reconciliation. And we're not just managing the conflict. We are resolving the conflict. And then we are returning our marriage, returning that relationship back to peace and order. Becoming stronger as a result. And then we can be in an intimate, connected relationship built on the rock of Jesus Christ. Healthy conflict leads to healthy relationships. When your relationship is not doing too good, I would put into practice healthy conflict, learning to fight right and watch God do something in your marriage. Watch God do something in your relationship and realize that it is growing because it is healthy, because healthy things grow. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Verse 18, it says, all of this, speaking of what God has done for us, all of this is from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. The bottom line is you and I cannot extend to somebody else what we have not accepted for ourselves which is God's grace, God's acceptance, and God's reconciliation. Chaos entered the world and caused sin and created the separation between us and God, and he couldn't stand it. So he robed himself in flesh, paid for the sin, our sin, to reconcile us back to him. He loves us that much. And he wants to reconcile us to him. And then he's given us the ministry of doing that very same thing, of partnering with him and proclaiming him with, through our relationships by being a reconciled, united couple, by being a united church, by being a united States of America, by being who God called us to be. That's when we were able to enter into that commitment and to have healthy conflict.